I'm Jeannie Phillips, and welcome back to Vermont Ed Reads, the podcast for, by, and with Vermont educators. And I am still here, as are you. Now, we recorded this episode with our lovely friend Lindsay Hallman back in February of this year, a time that at this point feels almost like a long-ago Camelot. Or perhaps, as the late, great Hunter S. Thompson put it, the place where the wave finally broke and rolled back. It's the end of March, same year, and so much about what we do and how and where we do it has changed, but not the why. In this episode, we talk about a book called Guts by Raina Telgemeier, and a lot of what we discuss centers around what the main character learns about herself and her body's reactions to anxiety. So first and foremost, if you're not in a space for that right now, I completely understand. Put it down. Go meditate, bake cookies, take a walk with a child in nature, listen to 99% Invisible instead. But for everyone who's sticking around, and those of you who eventually make it back from that nature walk, thank you. Thank you for being around, and thank you for staying around. It's okay to feel whatever you're feeling right now. It's okay to be overwhelmed. It's okay to be anxious. But if nothing else, this period in our history has shown us that when the going gets tough, Vermont Ed gets kinder. Y'all commandeered the buses for delivering food. The buses. Anyway, the work has always been hard, and now it's hard in new ways. And we are sending you love and hope and courage and gratitude for all of the ways you are showing up for each other. Now... Let's chat. I'm Jeannie Phillips, and welcome to Vermont Ed Reads. We are here to talk books for educators, by educators, and with educators. Today, I'm with Lindsay Hallman, and we'll be talking about Guts by Raina Telgemeier. Thank you for joining me, Lindsay. Tell us a little bit about who you are and what you do. Sure. Thanks, Jeannie, for having me. And um, so I was a middle level educator for 15 years. And that's really my heart is always with young adolescents. Those are my people. And I currently am the executive director of Unleashing the Power Partnership for Learning, also known as Up for Learning. So I have the privilege of working with schools across Vermont. Excellent. Well, I'm so excited to have you on the podcast. And um, you brought this book to my attention, Guts. Although as a school librarian who's worked K to 6 and 7 to 12, I have to say, Raina Telgemeier has been um, a big hit with my previous students for many years. Um, and her books were always hard to keep on the shelf, always books I had to have multiple copies of. But I'm really excited to talk about this one. Um, like Smile and some of her other books, it's a memoir told in comic or graphic form. And I wondered if you could introduce us to the Raina in this specific book. Sure. So I should also mention that I'm a parent. That's probably the most important piece of a nine-year-old. So this book really resonated with me as I was reading it and my daughter um, as we read it together. So I just wanted to um, put that piece in there. And so Raina, the author, and Raina, uh, the character, um, is we see her between fourth and fifth grade in this story. So she's nine. Um, And she describes herself as nervous, self-conscious, shy, and quiet, except when she's with her 
close friends, Jane and Nicole. And I would say that that's maybe what people see when she's in school. Those are those um, is are those qualities of just maybe being shy and quiet. But she's also she has so much more to her. She's a Girl Scout. She's an artist. She loves to draw, create comics. She's um, an older sibling to. She has two younger siblings. She lives in an apartment with a family of five, and um, her family is very, feels very well connected um, and supportive of one another, both in the sense that they they live in a tight space and so they're sharing and in close quarters, but also they are sharing and in close quarters just in their relationships. So they have very um, supportive relationships with one another. Yeah. I love that you bring out the that she may appear one way in school, but then in her family and in her friendships outside of school, she shows up in a different way. Yeah. Yeah, she even says, like, um, in the book on page 11, she says, like, um, I was a nervous kid, self-conscious, shy, quiet, most of the time. And I think a lot of young adolescents, including myself when I was that age, could really connect with that because you have your people. And her people are Jane and Nicole. And at um, lunchtime and at recess, they're laughing and sharing food and reading comics together and and um, where she kind of can take off that armor and be her true self and knows that her people love her for who she is. Yeah. Yesterday morning I read this um, piece from The Atlantic about the importance of middle school friendships and why they matter. And so that really makes me think back of that article and the way they um, impact uh, our resilience and our um, sort of capacity to learn and the way our brain functions, um, especially for young adolescents. Yes, absolutely. I, I mean, I think it's, you know, both you get the feedback from your friends who you can, you can try out who you are and who you want to be and get that feedback, but also just, um, you know, trying both forming your identity and um, getting the feedback, but also then, you know, having those close connections where you can feel like there is an outlet for those thoughts and feelings. Um, even if, you know, some of those thoughts and feelings you can't share with any other outlet. And I remember that as a young adolescent and I now can see it as a parent, just the different ways that we show up both, you know, in our different parts of our life and, and where our, our true authentic self comes out. Well, speaking of authenticity, um, this is just such a middle school book. It's set in middle school, you know, early middle school, really. Mm -hmm. But um, and then there's all these changes and transitions and gross out jokes and friend drama. And I wondered if it as a middle school teacher, somebody who spent a long time in middle school, if it felt authentic to you. Yeah, it definitely did. So uh, um, number one, it felt super authentic to me. Um, I was just looking at um, in the book on page eight, she says fourth grade was pretty much one long gross out contest. And I just remember that um, experience and I and I can ref I can reflect on what my daughter's experiencing now. But then I also can reflect on what they're looking at. Like this, um, there's a, a group of kids maybe in the cafeteria looking at it looks like garbage pail kids. And I and so I feel like maybe Raina and I might be around the same age. And um, and so I can kind of relate to some of the things that she incorporated here too. And so absolutely, like um, I've worked with fourth through eighth grade in my um, career as a educator and now have the opportunity to work with, you know, a huge range of young adolescents and adolescents. 
And I think she really captured it in many ways, like the kind of like the they're on the cusp of puberty and they're just kind of figuring out like, is it still cool to do this? There, you know, there's also that sense of like wanting to be friends with somebody but not knowing how to do that. And I think we see that sometimes with Michelle who um, sometimes, you know, says things that can um, rub Raina the wrong way and make her feel like maybe um, Michelle doesn't care for her. But in all reality, it seems like at the end, what we would get to is that, you know, it's really trying to figure out who are your people and how do you connect with each other and how do you get people's attention and... Michelle's a classmate. Michelle's a classmate, yes. And we find out at the end that Michelle is also dealing with her own... um, her own physical ailments as well. And, and, and that's been hard for her and no one knows that. So we, we learn that we all have our stories. And I, I think what's really cool is that at the end, there's a sleepover party too, that Raina's with her, her close friends and Michelle was going to be there as well as a, um, a new friend. And we find out that Michelle's in the hospital cause she has, an, um, had had surgery on her intestines, I believe. Um, and you, you learn that everyone has their, their thing, their story. Their, people are all dealing with stuff, and we don't always see it on the on the outside. And so for Raina, it's this idea that she's dealing with anxiety, and it's a real issue. for for And right at the time where she's at, that's where we start to see anxiety in our youth as well coming to the surface. It's right on the you know cusp of puberty where um, anxiety often really starts to show itself and so it starts to feel like well what's happening to me because I was fine before when I did all these things and now I have a hard time going to school because I'm worried I'm gonna get sick or because I'm worried about standing in front of uh, my peers and sharing information or a number of things so it starts to really um, the worries can start to consume young people just like for Michelle she had something that people couldn't see, but it, and it was a physical ailment, and um, and it was consuming her in a different way. So one of the things that really came up for me in reading this book is um, not only is anxiety emerging for some young people, right, and they're dealing with that, they're also just trying to identify it in the first place. Mm-hmm. And it shows up in all of these different ways, and I think it's so much harder Um, to struggle with something that you don't know what it is or you think it's just a figment of your imagination Um, and that part of the process of um, maybe becoming less anxious is just naming it in the first place. Mm -hmm. And so I wondered, um, I guess that what that makes me think about is, is, is how do we show up for young people when we're not sure what they're dealing with. They're not sure what they're dealing with. Anxiety looks like all these different things. Mm-hmm. It's not really our do- job to diagnose them. And so I guess I'm just asking that question of like, what's the best way for us as adults to show up in classrooms with the potential of having anxious students? Yeah, I think that's a great question. And, you know, I think about, so, you know, the statistically, like one, I think it's one out of five young people have an anxiety disorder. And and so we all have anxiety. It's part of our primitive, you know, part of our brain, you know, so that, you know, worries are important to have worries because it helps us remove ourselves from dangerous situations and our primitive part of our brain. 
it's when the worries start to take over and impact our daily um, life that it becomes a greater concern. And just like you said, Jeannie, it can manifest in so many different ways. And I think what ends up happening is that as um, as adults, sometimes we'll, we are quick to jump to labels like, oh, um, that's attention issues or that's you know, resistance to work, or that's this or that. And that's not really okay. I mean, because it, as we see with Raina, and, and maybe, and I don't know if this is all of the ways it manifested for her, it can look like so many things. It can look like avoidance. It can look like feeling sick. It can look like, so it can manifest in a physical way. It can also, um, get in the way of relationships, which I think we see that with Raina in her friendships um, because it's starting to consume her. And so I think we need to be really careful as adults in recognizing that, A, there's a lot of young people in our classroom that are experiencing this, and B, that it's going to look different for every individual. And Someone in my life once told me that anxiety, like when we, when someone has, for instance, diabetes, you wouldn't, you know, you, there's not really a, there might be a state, some stigma attached to diabetes, but I don't really think so. If someone has diabetes, we know that they need to take care of themselves in a certain way. The same thing for anxiety, that if you have anxiety, um, a major part of your life is impacted by this this particular, um, I don't know if we call it an illness or condition. condition, right. And just like diabetes, you treat yourself in a certain way, you take care of yourself. We need to recognize that there's ways to, there, we can get a handle on our anxiety and, and supporting all of our students in that. And I, there's one thing when she... Um, when she begins uh, therapy with her therapist, Lauren, and I really love that relationship because Lauren teaches her just basically her key mantra to her is try. Because Raina says, there's all these thoughts in my head and that manifests in all these feelings in my body. But sometimes articulating what it is that's causing those thoughts and feelings is really hard. And Lauren coaches her in just this idea of try. The other thing that I love, and um, this really connected me to um, a colleague and friend, Annie O'Shaughnessy, who does a lot of work with schools throughout Vermont um, in thinking about a whole school restorative approach and mindfulness. She has this, um, her own poster, her own mantra is two feet, one breath, that if we can just in those times where we start to feel those feelings or think those thoughts, put our two feet on the ground and take a deep breath you can feel a complete change in your body. And and that's reflected in what Lauren shares with uh, Raina as well. She just says, put your two feet on the ground and take a deep breath. And Raina ends up sharing that with her classmates as a strategy at the end of the, at the, end of the book as well. This makes me think so much about how um, trauma-informed practice is good practice for every student. Absolutely. And it feels like um, mindfulness practice in the classroom is good for every student, mm-hmm. even though even if we're doing it in a way to help our anxious students, our anxious learners. Absolutely. Um, I also was really interested in the relationship Raina has with her therapist, which is the one of one of the ways that she is taking care of herself. Mm-hmm. 
Um, I'm going to turn to pages 112 and 113 um, because there's a lot going on here. Um, Jane says to Raina, how come you're late for school so much? And Raina, to her close friend, says, um... And she thinks in her head, because I go to a therapist, and then she also imagines that Jane might say, why, is something wrong with you? Are you crazy? So instead of having that, because of that fear, she says, I can't tell you, which is, puts up a barrier in their friendship. But also, that word crazy gets thrown around a lot, and um, usually in ways that are insensitive or offensive um, to people with mental illnesses. And so there's a lot going on here, her fear of of um, telling somebody she's seeing a therapist, this this word that um, sort of is not is unkind in its use, maybe, and then also just like the stigma attached to to being in therapy. And I wondered if we could just talk about that. Yeah, I'd love to. Well, the the first piece that comes to mind is that here's her closest friend, her her BFF, you know, the person that knows her better than anyone, you know of all of her peers, and this, she can't tell her this thing. And it makes me think of, like, okay, if you broke your leg and you had to go to physical therapy, or if you had, um, I don't know, a physical illness and you needed to go to your pediatrician or your doctor, and someone asked you where you were, you would not hesitate to tell them. So it's frustrating to me as both just a human and as an educator that there's such a stigma with therapy and that this is the most important organ in our body our brains right and and then there's so much going on and it impacts everything we do and that we can't just be open about the idea that therapy is really important just like if I broke my leg and I needed to learn how to use my leg uh, in the proper way again so I could be as mobile as possible. Therapy is essential for those that experience anxiety disorder. And so the idea of this word crazy also really doesn't settle with me either, Jeannie, because what does that even mean? You know, and um, when we say people are crazy, we have these pictures that come to mind that aren't even accurate. And anxiety has nothing to do with... Um, One of the things that I wonder about as a lover of books, as an avid reader, is um, Reina's telling her memoir. And I can imagine that that was the thought that she had, both mm -hmm. in that time, in that place, at that age. Um, I'm not really criticizing her use of the word on the page necessarily. That might be her authentic experience. Mm -hmm. But I'm also wondering about how um, how we might talk to kids about why we might not want to use that word or how we might even talk to ourselves about why we might not want to use that word. And I, I think about, um, oh, the fabulous Rebecca Haslam talking about um, how a friend called her out called her in for mm -hmm. using that word. She said, do you realize how often you use that word? And I've been noticing my own vocabulary. Um, I use guys a lot, and I'm trying to stop that. I, I, um, I think I used to use this word crazy, and I've just tried to be more um, aware of the language I use and the impact it might have regardless of my intent. Yeah, absolutely. I agree with, with everything you just said. And I agree that also Raina probably 
and it, that's the way she felt at the time. Like, I don't think there's anything wrong with her putting this in her story at all. I think it's really important to like have that there because that is the stigma that's attached. And then you worry that that's, that's how people are labeled. Like, why are we giving folks, um, labels that are not even accurate? And so I think that it helps at the end. What I really, really love at that sleepover <laughs> again. And I, and I wonder, like, did that really happen? Maybe it did. Um, the girls in at the sleepover party are sharing some really personal information and it's time for Raina to share and she puts it out there and that feeling of like, okay, I can be my, I can let, take off the mask and truly be authentic and real and show up. And she tells them that she goes to a therapist and they're like, oh, my parents go to a therapist. Oh, my brother goes to a therapist. Oh, and <clears throat> what happens in that scenario is it normalizes therapy you know the idea of going to a therapist which for those that experience anxiety really supports them in understanding that that is a normal feeling that it's okay and then that's one last thing that you have to worry about is being at once you start talking about it and and being real with people you start to realize that it allows other folks to be real too like you and I think with students we need to be having these conversations we talk about all different other you know impacts on us as far as our health and well-being but we keep for some reason anxiety and depression are very taboo topics still in our society and I just wonder how we can make them more accessible and um, and just part of our natural vocabulary because if one in five students in our classrooms are showing up with an anxiety disorder, that's a lot of that's a lot of folks in our classroom that might be having similar experiences to Raina did. It makes me think about how shame thrives in the dark, mm-hmm. right? And 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 talking about it brings it out into the light. So Raina's been carrying this shame that really she needn't. It's a burden she needn't have carried. Right. There's other burdens that she's carrying. We all carry burdens, but shame is definitely not one of them. Um, I think it's really obvious to me now that um, it's important for this book to exist in the world. Um, And so um, I think it was important for Raina Telgemeier to share her experience. But I also think it's just important for, for those kids, those one in five that you keep mentioning, to see themselves in this book. And I wondered if you wanted to talk about that. Yeah, I, I really... Um, I think we need more stories like this. And that um, that is the beauty, I think, in many ways of Raina Telgemeier's work is that I just remember, like you said, the books were never in the library because they were always on the tables in my classroom. <laughs> I, I just remember all the copies of Smile and Sisters and now Guts that were always being carried around, carried around like these are essential texts for young people because A, they're accessible and B, they f- really resonate in the sense that, hey, I have had those feelings too. And there's like some takeaways as well. Like, okay, so Raina worked through it in this way. Here's some strategies. Maybe these will work for me. And like that seeing yourself reflected on the pages, which I think is just the beauty of all books, is like, it just gives you that that um, connection that there's others that are experiencing similar things. That you're not all you're not alone. That there's others that have these 
thoughts, feelings, experiences, and it's a way to share that. Um, and so I feel really grateful to Raina Talgemeyer for sharing her story. It's not an easy story to share, as we know, when you're sharing your personal <laughs> experiences. And I think that this book could potentially become a really important one for young adolescents in the sense that it allows them to have open conversations about anxiety and other um, mental disorders or illnesses that impact themselves and their peers. Yeah. I think we both are unanimous in our agreement about that. And um, there's another book that Raina Telgemeier has written more recently that um, maybe um, isn't the story she should have told. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's this book, Ghosts. It has encountered some really critical feedback. Um, and it concerns me because I suspect it's on the shelves in our Vermont schools because once you have a, an author like Raina Telgemeier, you buy every book. So I want to talk a little bit about ghosts um, and why we might want to think about its place in our collections and how we might talk to students about it. Do you, you've read Ghosts recently? I, I have, yes. And when we had talked about this conversation around guts, we had both agreed that there was, you know, that that was something that would be really important to center in this conversation as well. And it's interesting, when I went back to do some further research um, preparing for today, I um, stumbled upon a um, PSA that uh group of students, I think they were fifth and sixth graders, created at their school on ghosts and the idea of cultural appropriation. And they felt that, just like you said, should this book be in our library? And Before we talk about yes. their PSA, which I'll yes. put in the transcript, could we just give a little um, overview of ghosts? I think it's... Oh, yes. Um, uh, so um, the two sisters moved to the coast of California and... Um, and their neighbor, Carlos, um, becomes a friend, and um, they start exploring uh, with him, and he takes them to a mission. And that's where the story really starts to um, go awry, mm-hmm. despite Telgemeier's best intentions. Yes. So I think what ends up happening um Young people like to explore kind of the spooky side of things and the mysterious part of life. But what ends up happening is that um, there's a lot of exploration around Dio de los Muertos and the interpretation of what that is becomes very much like the American Halloween, which it really is not. One of the things that really interested me in Debbie Reese in particular has a really um, wonderful post about it and mm-hmm. um, is that missions are, are, are colonial institutions that yes. were designed to do a very specific thing. Um, and they caused a lot of, um, they were designed to convert mm-hmm. native people, right? Mm-hmm. And there is a lot of pain and there was a lot of um, um violence done in missions and so um Telgemeier presents this mission as this happy place and these ghosts is happy place and Debbie Reese really asked the question really to sort of sanitize the mission on the page is also problematic yes and the 
idea of forcing assimilation to the dominant culture is really problematic too. So we lose an entire narrative of an entire group of people, um, many type, many different groups of people um, who are impacted. And I think from what I did afterwards was I looked to see both after reading Debbie Reese's piece about um, the her feedback on ghosts is I went to Raina Telgemeier's site just to see like what did she have as an author's response because when you're an author you're putting your thoughts and feelings out into the world and there's going to be critique in many different ways I mean that's the that's the that's your role and um and that's what you are doing by telling stories and she recognized that this was a a huge learning opportunity for her that she had her story growing up she grew up in San Francisco and and um, experience things through her dominant culture, that that lens, yet she recognized that this was a big misstep and that she learned a lot from the experience. So I appreciated reading Raina's letter to, you know, to the community, to her, the readers. I think that's really interesting right now as we're talking. There's all this saga about the novel American Dirt. Mm-hmm which is um, a Mexican immigration story, migrant story, um, written by a white woman. And I've been following that because I'm really interested in own voices stories, stories written by the people who share identities with the people they're writing about, right? Mm -hmm. So the author and the characters they're writing about have um, similar uh, lived experience, if you will. And... um, And so one of the things that's made me really think about is, well, several things. One is that how easy it is as a white person, as a person, as a part of a dominant culture, Mm -hmm. to not notice the dominance of your own culture. Mm -hmm. Some people call it like, it's like the water we swim in and fish don't recognize the water they're in, right? Right. And so it's hard for us to name it. And um, I think that's a trap that's really easy to fall into when you're a part of a dominant culture. Yes. And so thinking about... um, Um, American Dirt has made me think about being an educator, Mm. myself as an educator. Uh, And it's made me a little bit uncomfortable because I think about how often I was in front of a group of students and I was interpreting their behavior and their words through my lens without ever actually questioning my own accuracy. Mm -hmm. And that even though I don't write books, right? Like I don't, I'm not at risk of writing a culturally appropriating story because I don't, I don't um, write books like that. I'm not going to tell that story. I do tell stories in my brain about mm-hmm. what's going on for my learners. And it's made me really like think about uh, h- how do I challenge myself on those stories? How do I, who do I need to talk to to see those students more clearly? Mm-hmm. So, um, I don't know. Those are, those yeah. are very much thoughts in progress that I'm still grappling with and wrestling with. But these, these books where um, authors tell stories that maybe aren't their own or include elements of stories that maybe aren't their own or that they can't fully understand as white people have me thinking about my own whiteness and how it shows up in, in, um, in spaces. Yeah, uh, absolutely. And so a number of things, like just the going back to guts how you know the story that we might tell ourselves as educators about how a student's showing up when they're experiencing anxiety and we are calling it 
that they don't care about learning or they are we put these labels on them they you know hypochondria hy- yeah or, or adhd or add we throw around a lot of labels a lot and we don't know so how do we get to know and that's i think Jeannie, that's a really important piece is back to the you know also being a white woman and you know what are what are the ways in which i can truly understand m- the learners in front of me um the folks in which I spend my day with, every, you know, you know, and if I'm in a classroom, and and I think that's the thing is we need to be we need to be taking time to share stories to truly understand to sit down and have time to connect. I think it comes back to that relationship. If you're not, if you don't really have those deep conversations with your learners and um, the youth that are you're working with, to truly get to know who they are and what the you know what is their experience, what does that mean for them? and really um, having opportunities for everyone to hear from each other, then we end up creating these stories in our head and interpreting them in our own way. And so whereas Raina had this experience growing up in San Francisco and maybe, you know, this was her experience, well, she just erased an entire experience for many, many people. And and I, I think we can we need to be cautious as educators, as white educators, to not erase those experiences in our classroom every day. And I need people to help me do that. Like, I mm-hmm. need folks to challenge my assumptions. Um, and in many ways, I think um, probably the author of American Dirt and maybe even Raina uh, Telgemeier had editors, had people um, to look at their work and help them think about it, but maybe they weren't the right people. Yeah, I would, I, I agree. And, um, What's interesting is that when I, I feel like when I first started teaching this idea of cultural appropriation, I didn't know what that really meant. You know, I didn't, that wasn't, um, I feel so lucky that we now have folks like Debbie Reese and many other scholars and thinkers that, and and a movement, this idea of our, you know, our own, own voice, own text, own, own voice. Own voices. Own voices. The movement around own voices. I just wish when I was growing up that that was present. You know, so I think about that when I read books with my daughter and we talked about, you know, we can talk about that. So in many ways, even reading ghosts, like do I think ghosts should be removed from a library? I don't think so. And I think that if it's there... I want to reference this PSA that I saw from these fifth and sixth graders. They made a whole PSA on cultural appropriation and how it shows up in ghosts. And in their library, they put up signage around the book so that people understand that this book, you might really enjoy it and it's really it might resonate with you in some ways. And it's really important that you now investigate it through this this angle too. I think that is a deeper learning opportunity that when we can say, I've read this book and it's and I know that it shows signs of cultural appropriation. I want to learn now more about this story too. So what's the story that's being told? What's the story that's not being told? I really think that's reading in a really different way, a really critical way of reading books. And I I think it elevates just um, the deeper levels of thinking that we can do with our youth when we're reading texts. And I don't think it is necessarily to say we need to remove all these books but we need to now look at these books critically who's showing up who's not and then what is this idea of cultural appropriation 
So I think that's a tremendous opportunity to really think deeply about um, literature and about storytelling. And um, I know that there are some folks um, doing some really interesting work around that. Um, Christy Nold is doing great work in her classroom around whose stories are we telling and whose are we not and what does that mean. Marley Evans is doing amazing work around that. I'm sure there are so many of you out there in uh, Vermont schools doing that work, and we appreciate that. I'm going to tell a story from my own um, experience. Yes, please. Um, about another Raina Telgemeier book, Drama. Drama's been around. Mm-hmm. I think I purchased it when I was a K-6 librarian. Let me just look at the publication date on this book. Copyright 2012. About the time that I moved from a K-6 school to a 7-12 to school, this book was out and it came out after smile i think smile had been a big hit Mm -hmm. actually and um in the district where i worked this book was on the shelf at the local k-6 as it should be and um drama is a delightful story um so in this book two boys smooch um kids love this book and um and i think it's an important part uh an important growing part of collections that represent um uh, gay and queer folks across age ranges, from picture books um, up through young adult novels. Um, but what happened in, I was no longer at the school, but what happened was um, a parent complained about drama. And the book got removed from the shelf, oh. uh, from the library. And um, uh, the librarian there and I um, went, wrote a letter saying, wait, whoa, 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 wait a minute. This book book belongs on the shelf. It belongs on the shelf because we have gay students or students with gay family members, gay friends, and they they deserve to see their realities on the shelves just like every kid does. Every kid needs this book in the library. And um, and the decision was to pull the book. And, and this is the part I really want to share. And this is one of my gratitudes to Raina Telgemeier is that the superintendent made that call without following our library policy. Mm. And so librarians, you know, you have these policies about um, the selection of, of um, books, right? And those policies should, and I hope do, include what happens when a book is challenged. Because one family complaint is not enough to pull a book off a shelf. And so we took that policy to the superintendent in a meeting and said, look, the policy says this. The policy says that a parent or a member of the community has to make a written complaint about the book and explain why. That then you have to form a committee. The committee has to read the book, right? Like you don't get to make, to to not read the book and decide it doesn't belong on the library shelf. And um, that the committee has to read the book and they have to decide. And so the superintendent did agree, thank you very much. And um, the book went back on the shelf and the family got told, great, make a written complaint. Well, they didn't. And so I think they didn't make a written complaint, and so the book just stayed on the shelf. And I think it's up to us, um, uh, librarians, educators, to stand up when something gets pulled because two boys smooch. The idea of censorship, uh, you know, in a library and just the fact that one person had a complaint. I'm sure if we all went into a library, there'd be one book that maybe doesn't resonate with us or doesn't align with our values or more and at the same time it's a really important book 
there's so many important books. How can we censor what's in a library? And we know that Raina Telgemeier resonates with so many young adolescents and young people. For me, as an educator, I had young people that um, struggled with reading, yet they found themselves in Raina Telgemeier's books, Smile, Drama, Sisters, and those were their books, their go-to books. And just to see the fact that, that a book would be removed because one it doesn't align maybe with one person's values, um, I'm really happy to hear there is good policy. And I wonder also if when that group of people come together to read the book, to decide whether it, yes, should be indeed in our library or not, if that group involves youth. And and who's making those decisions about what shows up in libraries and what doesn't show up in libraries? And I think that's where we then find um, educators having classroom libraries that are reflective of their students and, and beyond in offering diverse stories. So that rings true to me. I, I agree that young people belong on those committees. I don't think they meet very often because I think once <laughs> people feel like they have to put something in writing, they reconsider. Totally. Um, but I, it does also make me think about um, gatekeepers, right? Like the gatekeepers, the people that keep books off the shelf mm-hmm. and the people who condone books to be put on the shelf. Um, most school librarians, most librarians read reviews to determine which books to add to their collection. And I wonder what reviewers said about ghosts and the importance of Debbie Reese's voice in providing a counter review. Mm-hmm. Right. And then I also think about um, there have been some studies done that um, some reviewers will label certain books as controversial mm. in a way that keeps those books um, off the shelves of keeps librarians who maybe don't want to um, put themselves out there in that way from purchasing those books or f- keeps teachers from reading them in, uh, as class reads. And a lot of times those are books that um, are about the experiences of LGBTQ characters. Mm-hmm. And and I just, I guess, again, asking us to bring that critical lens to what we think is controversial and how our own assumptions and biases are embedded in that. Absolutely. Yeah, I think um, I am so, um, I feel really grateful when I was in the classroom to have had a library that really offered um, so many different, stories and perspectives for young people and when it didn't I made sure that those books were in my classroom library and I feel really grateful to have a town library I live in Jericho and Jericho town library Lisa is just a shout out to (laughs) Lisa at Jericho town library Lisa Buckton you rock amazing and she is just she gets it like she is one that you know we can go in there at any point and my daughter can just find a book that just and so many new books that resonate and also share so many stories that might not actually represent the culture of Jericho big surprise you know and offer lots of of those windows um, into the stories of others as well as those mirrors you know where we can find ourselves in the pages as well so Shout out to uh, Rudine Sims Bishop for um, giving us the language of um, uh, windows, mirrors, and sliding doors. Yes. We appreciate the way you help us think about literature in that way. Um, 
And a shout out to librarians um, for yes. all that you do to provide di- diverse books uh, and stories and experiences for our young people and to help them become critical uh, readers of those stories um, and develop that capacity to really um, look at um, look at stories, both fiction and nonfiction, with a, with a lens towards whose story is being told and whose story is missing and, and what, what does that tell us about power. Yeah, and I would just also add that for educators, just to when, when exploring literature in 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 our classrooms, just to always ask that question: whose story is being told and whose story is not being told? And I think there in itself offers so many different opportunities for folks to show up and be authentic and share their own experiences and be critical thinkers. I mean, I think we really are pushing our learners to think differently about literature. And I I feel just really grateful for that. And ourselves. Yes. Lindsay, that's an excellent way to end. Thank you so much for being my guest and wading into this very messy conversation (laughs) about Raina Telgemeier's books. Yes. Thank you, Jeannie. I'm Jeannie Phillips, and this has been an episode of Vermont Ed Reads talking about what Vermont's educators and students are reading. Big thanks to Lindsay Hallman for appearing on the show and talking with me about Guts. If you're looking for a copy of Guts, check your local library. And as always, a big shout out to Audrey Holman, our incredible audio engineer for all the work she does to put out each episode of Vermont Ed Reads. To find out more about Vermont Ed Reads, including past episodes, upcoming guests and reads, and a whole lot more, you can visit vtedreads.terraninstitute.org. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at vtedreads. This podcast is a project of the Tarrant Institute for Innovative Education at the University of Vermont.